Let me go ahead and pray, and then we will get started. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this body, this local body, an expression of you, Lord, where you do your work, the hands and feet. Father, we pray for your spirit today that we would allow it to work in our hearts. We pray that you would remind us of some very deep truths about our relationship with you today, God. And we thank you for each and every one that are here, Lord, whether they've been here for a long time or visitors or what have you, Lord. We just pray that it would be a blessing to them and that we would honor and glorify you with our time here together, God. Also be with those in the back working with the kids that, that would also honor you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is going to be a whirlwind. It's chapter 25 in Genesis, and there's a lot of little things that happen in this passage, but I'm not going to focus on those. We are going to go through those verses, and we're going to make sure everybody has a good basis in what's happening. But then we're going to focus on the last phrase of this chapter and what that means. So last, recently we've seen the death of Sarah, right? The marriage of Isaac to Rebekah at 40 years old. We talked about wells, women, and camels. And if you don't know what that means, then go back and watch some earlier ones. We talked about how Sarah was a type of the eternal bride. And there's some great sermons that have been leading up to this, Joel and Johnny and Manny. And so we just take a look at those if you haven't seen them. But today, as we head into chapter 25... Joel mentioned before that whenever you get genealogies in the Old Testament, it turns out usually to be bookends around things. And this is definitely some bookends in this one. So we're going to go through basically Abraham's obituary, and then we're going to talk about what happens to all three branches of his family. We have the continuation of the promise, and where we're going to focus most of our time, it's actually, I'm going to cheat, and it's going to be more of a New Testament passage because we're going to talk about the birthright. Because Jacob and Esau, we have the birthright issue at the end of this chapter, and we're going to talk about that in relationship to our birthright in Christ. So we're going to have a lot of verses. And in one section, I have 53 verses, but I promise I'm not going to read them all. At least not right this second. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. So his wife Sarah just died last chapter, and now he got remarried already. She bore him. You ready for the names? All right. Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemuim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanach, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. The only one of note that I want to bring out here is Midian, and when you read later in the Old Testament, the Midianites are another group that are in the a thorn in the side of Israel. And when you remember the story of Joseph, when his brothers sell him into slavery, there's three, all three branches of Abraham's family are involved in that transaction. You have the Israelites, the Ishmaelites, and the ones that come through Keturah. So it's like they didn't always get along very well, evidently. Verse 5. 
Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward toward the east country. Now remember, his first son was Ishmael by his concubine Hagar, right? He didn't give him anything. They gave him a bottle of water and sent his mother and the boy out into the desert. But God met her in the desert, and what did he do? He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So Ishmael also has a, a big nation, which they talk about here in a little bit. And then we have Isaac, who he has given everything to. And then he's got these other sons that he gave gifts to. We don't know what those were, but definitely can tell where the promise is coming through and where the inheritance is coming through. And this is important for a lot of reasons. Let's go to verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. And remember that Abraham is the, God gave him the promise that all of the land of Canaan would be his and his descendants. And remember when we talked about how even though he owned all of it, he still hadn't taken possession of it. And that cave that they're talking about, he purchased it. And he made sure to purchase it for the full price. And we see that same behavior back when the five kings and the king of Sodom went to Abraham and wanted to give him all of this stuff. And he said, I'm not taking anything from you because I don't want you to say that you made me rich or that you have some hand in God's blessing in my life because you don't. So he was very careful about that, even though he was the owner of all of this. But now he still has not taken possession of it. And I think we find that same issue today. We have all of these promises and all these truths about eternal life, the power of the Holy Spirit, God defeating sin through Christ, but we still have to fight with it. It's already happened, but it isn't fully culminated. And that's what Abraham was dealing with, and we are also dealing with that today. Let's go to verse 12. Now we're going on to the generations of Ishmael. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Jafish, or Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Like we said, bookends. So they're basically saying, okay, this is the end of the story of Abraham, and we're moving on to the next phase of the patriarchs and on down the line of the promise. Verse 19, generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, 
the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Again, we have these patterns that continue on. Sarah was barren. We go, we think about Samuel and Hannah was barren. Like all of these women that are part of God's working and part of God's plan. And meanwhile, child not of, children not of the promise, Abraham gets married to Keturah and she gives him like 12 kids, just like that. And it's, it's this thing where God is saying, I need you to be focused on me and you need to come to me and realize that we're working this together. And so, again, Isaac, who is the inheritor of all of these promises, he also has to pray and ask God to give them a child. Verse 22. Now he's starting to get into a little bit of the meat of it. So that's the end of the... uh, What do we call those things? Genealogies, for now. Sorry. The children... Verse 22. The children struggled together. So in verse 21, it said, Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So even before they're born, she has this prophecy in her mind. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which of course means red, not hairy. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Jacob is an interesting name. There's three variations that sound very similar to each other. And one of them means deceiver. Another one means heel catcher, which means someone who trips other people up. And as you see in later chapters, he definitely is a little shady in the way that he deals with people. (laughs) Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Favorites. How many parents have favorites? The honest ones are raising their hands, but Wes only has one kid, so he's cheating. (laughs) Definite favoritism going on here. I mean, it would be easy to play the parents off against each other in this situation. But we all usually have favorites. You're just not allowed to say it out loud. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of, the red stew, some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now, a lot of guys, there's a few guys in here who have been in the military, specifically in the army, and you've had to go out in the field. And how do you feel when you come back in? Nice and tired, right? Really exhausted. But this guy's a little bit over the top. He's kind of exaggerating, I think, and he's kind of whining. (laughs) Jacob says, 
sell me your birthright now. And here's what Esau's answer is. I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? I mean, that's, that's a little over the top. Okay, I get you're exhausted, but sorry, dude. Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And that's the end of this chapter. So let's talk about what was involved in his birthright and what did he despise. And then how does that relate to us and our birthright that we have in Christ? Genesis 48.16 says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And this is passing on another blessing to another group of boys down the line. So historically, and this is, you know, not popular these days, but historically, the inheritance would be passed through the firstborn male of the line, right? And they would decide what was going to happen, and the name, the line of the headship of the family would pass through that on and on. But it turns out in the Bible that God hasn't really done it that way as he fulfills his promises. We go all the way back to Seth and Cain. Cain was the eldest of Adam and Eve, but he didn't get the birthright. Shem and Japheth, the oldest, did not get the birthright. We have Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was way older than Isaac. He did not get the birthright. Jacob and Esau, the younger, got the birthright. Judah was the oldest. He did not get the birthright. It went through Joseph, who was near the bottom of the totem pole. And even then, when his brothers are, when uh, his father is giving the, the blessing, he crosses his hands. And he puts his hands this way as he's given the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. And J uh, Joseph's like, Dad, what are you doing? Put, put it back. This is the older one. This is the younger one. And he's like, I know. This is how it's got to be. And then you have David, the youngest of all of his brothers. And he became the king who is now, even now, it says Christ inherits the throne of David. So God continually does things differently than all the rest of the people have done things. He was the second Adam. That is correct. And we'll talk about that. <laughs> so the thing is, is that, I mean, you, you can kind of see the idea of your firstborn, and I don't care whether it's a girl or a boy, that is kind of a turning point in your marriage. It's the start of the creation of a new family and a next generation. So it's kind of a big deal. And I know that as young parents, when we have our first child and we're trying to do everything perfectly, and the second child comes along, and it's like, ah, they'll be all right. It's fine. Ah, just wipe it off. It's okay. And by the third or the fourth, it's like, what? Uh... But in the Old Testament and in this Middle Eastern, Near Eastern kind of tradition, 
what they would do is if you had five kids, you would divide up everything into six portions and give two to the oldest, and everybody else would get their part. But the headship of the family and the authority of the family went to that whoever was the heir, regardless of who that was. And in this case, he said, it said Abraham gave everything to Isaac. He gave gifts to the other boys of Keturah, but he gave everything to Isaac. And we remember that Abraham was an extremely wealthy person. He had cattle, he had servants, he had all kinds of riches. But that isn't the important part of what he gave to Isaac. Because there's a covenant and there's a promise that Abraham gave or was given by God. And that line that said, you will bless all peoples on the earth, that is what Isaac inherited. That is the part that is important for us. So what is our birthright as a Christian? Well, it turns out there's three phases to the birthright of the Christian. Did you know that? Not just one. There's three. Now, the basis of it, obviously, is our relationship with Christ, which confers eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Childship, sonship, daughtership, you become a child in the, in the family of God. The priesthood, we are a royal priesthood. And there's also a kingship. We participate in all of those things, and we're going to go through that. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the adoption. The fact that we're now part of God's family. And how many people have heard to say that we're citizens of the kingdom of God? Right? That's, that's only part of it. Because you're not just a citizen. Like, I'm a citizen of the United States. But in this case, you're part of the actual ruling family of the universe. You're not just a citizen. You're part of the rulers. That's part of what God gives us here. But let's talk about the adoption first. Romans 6.14. So in this particular section, I have 36 passages and 53 verses. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of them. But if you want the list afterward, I can give it to you. Or if you want to jot down these references. But this is the basis of our, of our inheritance. If Romans 6.14, for... Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, we're not under the law, we're under grace. That's part of the key basis of our relationship with, through Christ, through his blood. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though, the, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. 
Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Galatians 4, 5 through 7. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, which is, I read this passage a little bit ago, so you're no longer a slave but a son. This is, there are so many places in the New Testament and allusions to it in the Old Testament about this relationship and this adoption. And we have to remember what that means and realize that there is a ton of scripture that brings us up over and over and over and over. This is a big deal. Matthew 18.5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 1 John 3.2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now remember what Jesus told us through the scriptures. Mind has not seen nor mind, mind imagined the things that God has prepared for us. And he says right here, we don't know what we're going to be when he appears, but we're going to be like him. How long has it been since you just thought on that verse? and just dwelt on it and realized that I cannot imagine in all my imaginations. We look at all of our great movies that we've created. You know, you got all the Marvel movies and the Lord of the Rings and all these stories that have been written and all this imagination. And it doesn't get high enough to imagine what God has prepared for us in the future. We just don't know. But it's going to be good. We know that because we can trust. Romans 9.8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Which promise are we talking about here? Anyone? The covenant? This is the promise that started in Abraham and goes all the way down through, through the line of Isaac, all the way down to Jesus, okay? That covenant that God made, even before that, there was a covenant with Adam. He said, have dominion over all the world and be fruitful and multiply. And it broke right away. Adam broke it. But since Jesus is the second Adam... That redeems it and restores it. And that dominion and that, and that charge is still part of the entire conversation between us and God as his children. Now, we're not Israel. We're the church. But we partake in the promise that came through Abraham. And we are heirs and grafted into that. Jesus said that we are like a wild olive branch grafted into the olive tree. Right? So we're not Israel. Israel still has things to do. God still has work to do with Israel. But we are partakers of the promise. For John 1.12 But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become the children of God. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Romans 8, 14 through 19. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So not only do we have this inheritance, and not only are we the sons of God, and not only is the Spirit of God witnessing with our spirit to tell us that we're his sons, the entire creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed in glory. What does that even mean? The creation, the angels, the things that God have created are waiting to see the revealing of the sons of God. Again, we don't know. We can't imagine what it is that God has prepared. And these things that the apostles just slide in, this little couple of words at the end of a verse, you start thinking about it and it's just overwhelming because God has given us so much. Psalm 27.10. We'll go back to the Old Testament. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This is what he did for all of us. Romans 8.23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first, first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this is that tension. We've already been redeemed. Christ has already won the victory. But we're still waiting eagerly for it to come to fulfillment, for our, our bodies to truly be glorified. Ephesians 2.19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So there's that phrase, being fellow citizens. Hebrews 2.11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That source is Jesus. And he calls us brothers. Hebrews 2.9 and 10 and 12 and 13, But we see him for a little while was... But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jump to verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children God has given me. And I'm jumping all over the New Testament. 
and a few verses in the Old Testament. This is all through here that we are children and heirs of what God has given us. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the mystery the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Well, we're the Gentiles, right? We're non-biological Jews. We're the Gentiles. And the mystery is that we are partaking in the same promises that were handed down. And the Jews, of course, were skeptical of all this in the beginning. And most of them are still skeptical of it. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do we shine as lights in the world? Do we really realize and grab on to the fact that we are God's children? And that has not only does it provide all of these benefits, it also provides responsibility. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Or a couple minutes. Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans 9.26, And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And that's what we are, sons and daughters of the living God. Isaiah 43.7, Everyone who was called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. John 1.13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you who are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So that's just a little smattering. I still have a bunch more here in case I run out of time or, you know, have more time at the end, I can just keep reading. So now we're going to move on. That, that's, that's the adoption, right? That's the, you are now children, you get the inheritance, the, other, the second phase that we partake in with Christ is the fact that he is the high priest and we are part of the royal priesthood. So there, are, there is a priestly part of our inheritance and our responsibilities that we partake in with Christ. What does that mean? So the priesthood of all believers contends that while there is still a priestly class, it contains each and every believer. All believers share in Christ's priestly status due to our union with Christ. 
Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and man, and we share that role through him. Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our our confession. Now remember, in the Old Testament, how did the priest class work? The people had to come to the priests, and the priests would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, and the high priest was the only one who could go into the inner part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. No one else could go in there. And do you know it was traditional that they would tie a rope around that guy's ankle? So he went in there, and then if he got struck down by God, they could pull the body out because they weren't allowed to go in there. Now, the Levites were the priestly class, correct? How did the Levites get to be the priestly class? Does anyone remember that? Aaron. There was one other thing. It was a little bit messier. Remember the golden calf? Do you remember Aaron making the golden calf? And Moses is up on the mountain, and God is speaking to him, giving him the Ten Commandments. And then he comes down, and he sees the Israelites engaging in this idolatry. And he gets really upset. And he says, those who are with me, kill your brothers. And the Levites stepped forward and started killing all the other Israelites. And that is why they were set apart, because they were zealous for God. And he said, okay, you guys are my priests. But then we get all the way down to Ezekiel in the exile, And Jeremiah, they were partaking in bad things as well, and they were not leading God's people well. So there was one priest named Zadok, and God said, from now on, the Levites are still going to run the affairs of the temple, and they're going to carry all the holy instruments, but none of them are going to be allowed into the Holy of Holies, only Zadok's line of the Levites. So it continually refines over time. But there's still a separation. There's a very limited set of people that were able to go into the Holy of Holies. Well, what happened to the Holy of Holies when Jesus was raised from the dead? Torn in two. There's no more veil. And all believers have the ability to go directly into the Holy of Holies through Christ. So we're all priests. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, though through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This is the spiritual places, the heavenly realms. Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual places, against powers and principalities and, and, and the spiritual wickedness in high places. This is where it took place. The real battle took place. Galatians three thirteen through 14. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit of God is part of the promise. Did you realize that? The spirit of God is part of the promise. Let's come all the way down from the stuff we're studying in the Old Testament. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter is tying the royal priesthood identity of the church with our union in Christ. Revelation 5.9-10, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this one has both the kingship and the priesthood. And Jesus applies it directly to us. Romans 12, 1. And this is what we do as priests. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the Old Testament priests sacrificed bulls and blood, gave of, you know, they had drink offering and thank offering and grain offering. And then Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and by his own body, he redeemed everyone. We are to be sacrificing our own bodies. What does that mean, to sacrifice your body? It means service. It means giving of yourself for the kingdom of God. It means bearing up one another's burdens. It means giving love to those around you. That is sacrificing your own body. And that is what we're supposed to do as priests of the Most High God. We are sacrificing ourselves for the kingdom. Hebrews 13, 15, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's the second part. We sacrifice our bodies and we praise and worship through our speaking, through our singing. That is part of our priestly responsibility is praising and worshiping God and giving him glory. How many people knew that already? Think about it. Keep thinking about it. Every day. It's like, what am I doing as a priest today? The most significant blessing is that there is no hierarchy of beings. Archangels, angels, archbishops, bishops, and priests standing between the believer and God. Rather, we have union, communion, and fellowship with God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. When Christ uttered his last breath on the cross, he tore into the temple veil shrouded the, that shrouded the Holy of Holies. Christ's priestly work opened a new and living way through the veil of his flesh so that all believers have immediate access to God who is in the heavenly Holy of Holies. As Christ taught his disciples, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, which is Matthew 18.20. That was a quote by a guy named J.V. Fesco. 
where two or three are gathered. How many people do we have in the room right now? Two or three or more. You know, math. (laughs) Jesus is here with us right now. The king of the universe, the royal high priest, the one who sacrificed himself with his blood, he's right here with us. So let's move on to the last part, the kingship. Ephesians 1.10, and then jumps down to verse 20. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the statement of God giving total dominion of the entire universe to Christ in a formal way. And we are the body of that, of Christ. That's one way that we participate in the kingship. We are the body of Christ, and he is the king. Matthew 2, 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you come, for, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So these first verses are Christ, the Bible talking about Christ being the king and having dominion. And then the second part is our participation in that. Luke 1, 32 through 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the God we serve. This is the Lord Jesus, who we are now brothers, co-heirs, and children of the Most High. Micah 4.7, And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time and forevermore. Now, what about our participation? I mentioned that we had a mandate, Genesis 1.26 through 31, which says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. 
That was an original mandate that was in Adam. And he broke it in about 35 seconds. Sin entered the world. There is the mandate not being fulfilled. But Jesus is redeeming the nations, right? He's going to bring all of it back. He's going to redeem the entire universe. It says the universe itself is groaning like a woman in childbirth, waiting for the restoration. And Jesus is going to do that, including this. Romans 5.12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The three, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trans, trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Second Timothy 2.11, this saying is trustworthy, for if we had died with him, we must also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We talked a lot about this before. The sacrifice, God keeps both sides of the covenant. Remember when Abraham was, God was making the covenant and they set out all the animals and they had the fire, but then he put Abraham to sleep and he walked through. He's taking both sides of it. So what did Esau give up when he despised his birthright? Besides the wealth of his father, he gave up the promised land. He gave up the line of the Messiah. He gave up the blessing of all the people on the earth through his offspring. That's what he gave up. What do we give up? Can we despise our birthright? I say we can despise our birthright. Now that all these verses and all these things I've brought up, to me, it just staggers the mind of what God has provided for us with all of his blessings and our actual, the truth that we're his children and we're heirs in the kingdom. But when we focus inwardly on ourselves instead of outwardly, we care about our own needs above all others, we worship our plans and our comforts over the living Christ, then we're leaving some things on the table every day that we do that. As a child, I'm leaving fellowship with the Father, I'm leaving guidance, I'm leaving comfort in my spirit and my soul, I'm leaving intimacy with the Father. I am giving those up for the times that I want to focus on myself instead of on Him. I am abdicating the responsibility to exercise the gifts that God gave me for the body, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians chapter 4 lay out all these different gifts, and those aren't exhaustive lists. As a priest, I'm giving up the priestly duty of sacrificing, sacrificing myself, sacrificing in praise and worship, and even sacrifice, exercising those gifts can also be part of that. Ministering, which the word minister means servant, ministering to the family, my brothers and sisters, I'm giving that up. And as a ruler or co-heir, part of the ruling family, remember Paul said that 
you get crowns. And what do we do with those crowns? Put them at the feet of the throne in heaven. Well, I'm not collecting any crowns when I'm not fulfilling my roles. I'm not representing the kingdom properly. I'm supposed to be leading others into a kingdom that, remember what's it say? The gates of hell will not stand against us. That means that the kingdom is advancing and they're going to steamroll the gates of hell. But I wouldn't be part of that if I'm just hanging out in the back waiting for other people to do what they're supposed to be doing because I'm focused on myself. When I use my inherited gifts for the body, I'm fulfilling my priestly duty to sacrifice and to worship God through those and using my kingdom resources to help the downtrodden and lead them into a kingdom that has and will break down the gates of hell, restoring the nations and redeeming the entire universe. Worship team, I should have told you to come up five minutes ago. So God's going to restore those nations, and he's going to use us to do it. How many people have heard of the millennial reign? Thousand years, God reigning. What are we doing during the millennial reign? We're reigning with him. We, again, we don't know what that means, but he says we will rule and reign with him. And Revelation spells out some of that for us. So let's pray before we worship. Father God, I just thank you for your word and the power that you have provided through that word that we get to know you, Lord. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It cuts apart our soul and our spirits. Lord, reveals to us the truth. God, I thank you that we can be your children if we but accept you, Lord. And I thank you that many of us here are your children right now. And I pray that you would bring to mind on a daily basis the priesthood, the kingship, the adoption, Lord, those things that make us part of your divine plan that we get to participate in, Lord. It's amazing. We thank you so much for it. And we just pray that we would honor and glorify you, Lord, as your spirit works through us and transforms us into what you want us to be, unique individual tools in your hand, Lord, to do the work of the kingdom. In Jesus' name.